This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning, I'm uh, really excited to be speaking with Gary Mayerson, who is the founder of Mayerson & Associates. It is the first law firm in the nation dedicated to representing people with autism. Gary, good morning and thanks oh, for being morning. on the show. Good morning. You know, when we first started, it wasn't One in 59, <laughs> it was like four in, in 10,000. Yes, that's what it was actually when I started at Anderson about 13 years ago, or it was close to that, and uh, I've had to change the name of this show several times, even since this has just been going on. It, the original name of this podcast was One in 88, and then One in 68, <laughs> and now I recently had to change it to One in 59, and we'll see what happens in the future. But that's a good thing to note. For those of you who don't know, this show is uh, titled One in 59 because it represents the number of children who will receive an autism diagnosis in the United States uh, currently, and um, uh, the number is actually higher for boys than it is for girls. So the one in 59 is an average of the two. So thanks for bringing that up, Gary. And uh, speaking of back when it was four in 10,000, you know, your name is going to be familiar to probably a good number of our listeners. Um, anybody who is raising a child on the spectrum, especially in the New York area, or has been interested in learning and understanding the history of the sort of educational rights for children on the autism spectrum as they're going through their school programming, may have uh, heard your name, may have read some of what you've written um, in terms of books and, and probably papers and things of that nature. Um some people may not know your exact history, so I'm wondering if we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your story, how you shifted your your law practice, and, and why, and then we can get into some of what's happening currently. Sure. Well, I'm sort of like the accidental tourist in this field. Uh, I started out as being a – I was a partner for a midtown uh, Manhattan law firm doing commercial litigation work for individuals like Donald Trump and Leona Helmsley and uh, even uh, George Harrison from the Beatles. <laughs> and we very had a very checkered kind of history of doing litigation work. And uh, all of a sudden, a family member was diagnosed with autism, and we had to spring into action And uh, in that environment, which is in the, ni- the 1990s. And that was very difficult to, um, you know, for, for parents, even with resources, to get, you know, effective uh, programs going on. So that was a very tough time, I think, for the world of autism. And we were able to... Um, you know, get those, get the resources that we needed. And I finally got to the point where I said to my wife, hey, you know, there should be a law firm that represents individuals with autism. And there wasn't any. And I was really kind of surprised to see that. And that's how, that's how the firm got started. Yeah. I remember when you and I met a while back and, and you were telling me that part of the story and it was sort of an epiphany, I think, for you, where you recognized very clearly the resources that you had, maybe most notably, the fact that you you are an attorney um, and and knew and felt comfortable with your the you know where the advocacy needed to needed to go and you recognize that for so many families that's not there it, it's not and 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 that in itself is a daunting task so what did fam- other families who didn't have those resources do at that time with without a, a law firm with that specific area of expertise oh well, unfor- unfortunately I think that they went without I mean there were, there were many instances where I think families didn't even know that their children had autism. They weren't encouraged to go see, uh, get, get evaluations and assessments. Uh, they didn't uh, know what to ask for in terms of the IEP process, and they basically were 
kind of like in the dark, really, as to what to do and what to what steps to take. Right. And I, you know, that's definitely a story that I've heard many times over. And thankfully, I see shifting, even outside of your specific area of work. The um, one other thing that's changed is I think the stigma is changing and the encouragement, like you said, of, you know, your child better than anyone. And if you think something's going on, talk to your doctor, ask questions. Here's a, you know, here's a place to start has changed dramatically. So I would agree with you that there was also quite a number of people who weren't uh, attempting to to access resources because they didn't know that anything was even going on or potentially yeah. available that they weren't yeah. receiving. And with the internet and with, the, you know, I think parents are, I think are today much more sophisticated and informed than they were 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think that as a, uh, partially as, as a result of that, the school districts in the nation are, have gotten better overall. I mean, there's still lots of, there are pockets of problems throughout the nation, but I would say that overall in the last 20 years, the public schools have picked up a, you know, quite a bit of uh, information and they know how to treat autism better now than they did before, certainly. Which is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get to those pockets too. Um, I know that there's differences in every school district and certainly geographically Graphically, throughout the nation, there seems to be some some big discrepancies. But you know, progress is progress, so that's something to be celebrated. It's all um, relative. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I have a question. Take yourself back twenty years ago. You open Mayerson and Associates. How many of you were in that office? Well, Mayerson and Associates sounds like a big. Right now, we're six attorneys, and we've got you know uh, four four paralegals and other support staff. So we're you know it's a bigger operation today. But in, the, in those days, we're talking about me, one other attorney, and a paralegal, and that was it. And that was it. And what happened? I mean, you you must have found some way to connect or or market yourselves or make you know make make yourselves known to uh, certain families. But what were well, some of the first things that happened? Did, did you get flooded with um, with requests to, to represent? We did. Didn't really have to do much marketing. I, I, I went to uh, a number of conferences. We were getting a lot of referrals from doctors and people that were in the field. People like Ivar Lovas at the mm-hmm. time, and mm-hmm. and I started going around the country doing these um, these far flung cases in Alaska, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and other and Texas and other places. And my theory was, if we could get some of these in these areas to go with. Uh, effective programming that we could get, you know, some of the cities to, to to do so as well. That it would be we could fill in the nation if by taking these these you know these travel cases. And is that what happened? Yeah, I th- I think that uh, that's uh, that's ultimately what happened. We went out to Alaska. <laughs> we had a big case in Alaska. We had a big case in Chatt- a really big case in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the Deal case. Mm-hmm. Which uh, went on to uh, end up in the even in the you know before the Supreme Court, mm. and uh, I think that you know all these cases it was almost like connecting the dots right. that that eventually they sent a message and that and that the the what was going on in the Supreme Court was an evolutionary process which is you know I think it's not over yet but it's it's gone a long way and now you have the Andrew F case from uh, from 2017 which is a whole different standard for the nation than we were facing you know 20 years ago it was a much lower standard of care and you can't you know when you're dealing with something as pervasive as autism obviously I'm preaching to the choir on this show <laughs> you, you cannot have a uh, a lackluster program where it'll it'll be destined to be ineffective for sure right and so okay so I want to dive in a little bit there. So you started with these sort of geographically diverse cases. Um, 
with some strategy behind that in terms of filling in the gaps throughout the nation. Can you give us a sense of, um, you know, in the very early cases, what were the main areas of focus? You know, was there was there literally were you representing children who were receiving nothing and so you were advocating and representing for them to get something or was it more you know somebody who's getting something that was generalized and looking for more specialized supports what what were the needs Uh, back then i think that most of these cases if i had to really synthesize them were cases where the family was looking to put into place or was looking to get funding for applied behavior analysis programs. Mm-hmm. So the applied behavior analysis in those days was often thought by many of the school districts as, as some, you know, being like a, like, a, like a witch doctor. Like they didn't think it was a legitimate uh, service or, or educational approach. Then the Surgeon General came out with his, his uh, report in 1998 and there were other similar reports showing that ABA was effective and it was scientifically validated. And from that point on, it became easier to get school districts to to put into place ABA programming. Mm-hmm. But in those days, you know, if a family was said, I, I have a $60,000 a year ABA program, the school districts didn't want to have anything to do with it because they saw these floodgates opening up and the, the, these statistics were getting bigger and bigger for autism in general. And they were getting very nervous about the cost of this uh, this, this educational approach mm-hmm. rather rather than looking at it as an investment for the future. You know, I mean, uh, again, I'm preaching to the choir. Right. School districts tend to think of the, you know, this year's budget. What what works for this year's budget? Whereas if you're a family, if you're a professional in the field, you're thinking about what is going to be the ultimate outcome for this child when the child turns 21. Mm-hmm. How independent will that child be when they when they exit the educational system? So you know, parents and and professionals, I, I think, are much better at taking the long view. And school districts have only recently warmed to that uh, that perspective. Oh, thank you for that, and I would agree with you. I think that's um, it's been a it's been a long road and one that I think gets us into trouble a lot with almost any issue when you really take a short sort of one time only approach as opposed to the view of you know this is an investment. I love that you use that word. Um, we have about a minute left before we have to take a, a quick break. I wonder if you could paint us a quick picture of some of those early families that you worked with and that you represented. How scary was this for them to to get into a legal, um, a, a, you know, a, a legal sort of argument or, or um, situation with their homeschool district? Was it were families hesitant to even do this? Well, the families I was working with predominantly were families with very little resources, and I have to tell you, it takes a lot of a lot of courage to come forward when you have little resources, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's one thing if you have you know you know millions of dollars and you want to bring the test case and even then there's coverage involved for sure but if you're a family that's marginal it's all it becomes a bet your life case and they could literally lose what little savings they had pursuing a, a program like this so i was dealing mainly with families uh you know with some exceptions who really didn't have much by way of resources so mm-hmm. we had to we had to basically fill in because you know it costs money to fly out there and stay in hotels and so forth. I remember one of the hotels, one of the hotels I stayed at in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I go to check in and the guy behind the counter wasn't even wearing a shirt, not even, not even, (laughs) not even an undershirt. So it was, you know, 
you have to sort of bring yourself down a little bit so you can get the case done. Right. Okay. That's a that's a, a great visual and um, and also just definitely says a lot about the integrity that you and your associates uh, take when it comes to the importance of this work. Gary Mayerson, we're going to come right back after a quick break to talk about some more specific areas of your work over the more recent recent past. This is one in fifty nine, the weekly talk show on topics uh, related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. Have you driven by Anderson Center for Autism? Have you ever wondered what we're all about? Well, we're a state-of-the-art educational program. We're a nurturing home away from home. We're a community resource. We're a training center for people from all corners of the globe. We're a deeply devoted family of professionals who utilize evidence-based practices to optimize the quality of life for people with autism. And we're here for you. Call us today at 845-889-4034 or visit us online at andersoncenterforautism.org to learn more. Welcome back to 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and I'm talking today with Gary Mayerson, founder of Mayerson & Associates, which is the first law firm in the nation, in the nation, people, dedicated to representing people with autism. So, Gary, thank you for, uh, in the first half of the show, kind of going over what led you into this particular area of work. You left us with a really quick but um, but certainly visually um, impactful statement about what some of those early years were like, especially when you were representing families where you had to travel and they didn't necessarily have the means to pay for all of the costs associated with having you represent their their child. Let's talk about the other side. In in the case that you've described so far, how much did that district end up paying and how long did they spend fighting that case against that family? Well, we're talking about the deal case from Chattanooga that ultimately went up to the Supreme Court and the school district's appeal was rejected ultimately. But after all the appeals, we found out it was, and it was in the newspaper in Chattanooga that the school district there had actually spent over three million dollars defending the case, which they then lost. And how long then did that take? About six or seven years in total. <gasps> Okay, so let's just tie that quickly back to what we were talking about earlier, which was your main point here, which is school districts investing in the success of their students and keeping their students in district and at home with their families was a very new idea and one that wasn't all that received. But the idea of a school district, keep in mind, a public school district, which is funded in large part by taxpayer money, right? Spending $3 million and spending six to seven years fighting a case, which then in the end of end result was that they paid for the ABA program, correct? Well, they not only paid for the ABA program, but they had and that they not only had to pay the three million dollar plus to their own attorneys and experts, and there were lots of them, but then they had to pay our attorneys' fees, that the family's attorneys' fees as well. And not all of them, but quite a bit. You know, a, a hefty six figure sum for sure. Wow. So they, so, you know, I don't know what the total was, but it might have been closer to, you know, closer to four million when you when you add it all up. Amazing, amazing. And can can I ask around what year this all came to pass? Well, two thousand and five, two thousand four and five was roughly when the when the when the school district was booted out of the Supreme Court mm. before that it had started maybe in 1998 1999 wow with and 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 you should remember that the the hearing officer that heard the case it was a, it was almost a 30 day trial ruled for the parents the parents won you know it was it won handily and there was all kinds of it was an excoriating decision that really put the school district in its place and i was kind of surprised that they took the appeal right and they so. took it and they took it all the way. Can you give us a sense before we go into a, another big case, the Andrew F case, which I want to I want to hear your perspective on. What was the main 
argument that the school district's attorneys brought to the table. Well, you, 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 it's hard to believe, but it wasn't a scientific debate over the efficacy of ABA. It wasn't about that at all. It was really about the parents' attempt to have the ABA uh, issue discussed at an IEP meeting. The parents brought you know, all this evidence. There for their, they, they had their data and so forth from their ABA program, and they brought it to the IEP meeting and said, we want to talk about whether you can give our child an ABA program or fund it. And the school district's response was, we won't even discuss ABA. We won't even, it, it was not a it was not on the menu for discussion. And ultimately, that's how they lost the case because of the procedural safeguard concern that the parents had been not uh, meaningfully included in the IEP process at all. Wow. So that was that was a big case for IEP inclusion, that parents, if they have concerns, that those concerns get to be discussed and, uh, and elaborated on at the meeting in a meaningful way. And not just simply that the parents get to say things and then they write them down and say, okay, thanks, we reject it. it has, there has to be meaningful consideration of the parents' concerns. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I do think, from what I've heard and the ones, a few that I've sat in on, you know, that has changed significantly. But you still, honestly, I'll tell you, you I still talk to families who are coming, you know, even through the admissions process in Anderson, who will tell stories about, you know, there's still a wide discrepancy of some of those meetings and, and uh, those discussions that seem very sort of open and everybody's got an, uh, a voice at the table and some that still you know, are very, very challenging in terms of questions and looking for detailed answers and uh, an open discussion. So still still um, some work there, but that is wild. Three million dollars, maybe more in seven years. Um, just think just think of the number of families that could have been serviced with that three million dollars. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying is that, it, you know, this was all about for one individual, a sixty thousand dollar a year uh, educational program and instructional program versus the, 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 the obvious clear deliberate decision to spend three to four million dollars to avoid doing something that that was um, I think now we would all say would be in the better interest of of a student uh, going through a school program and again also allowing them more opportunity to stay at home to live in their home neighborhoods and their communities and not be looking at the potential of having to having to um, to move into a different uh, maybe residential placement because the school district isn't able to, su- to supply the instructional opportunities yeah. that are needed I could go on and you are preaching to the choir so I will stop for a moment let's get into Andrew F um, that was a very significant case and I think that uh, it'd be great to hear you kind of talk about that a little bit yeah, well, this is about the, the educational standard that's FAPE, you know, the free and appropriate public education that's guaranteed under the IDEA statute. Mm-hmm. And before NGREF, you know, you had the Rowley case that went back to, I think, ni- 1982. And for decades, the, there, was a lot of, the, the, there was a lot of questions about, well, what exactly does FAPE mean? What is the standard? And you would be surprised to, to hear that the standard at that time by many courts was barely more than de minimis was enough. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. It just had to be more, just a, over, a hair over de minimis. And courts would say, well, that's enough. We don't have to, we, you know, it just has to be appropriate. And they talked about the Chevrolet and not the Cadillac and all these oh. analogies. And I, you know, would hear them from, from now to sundown. But ultimately, it, it didn't mean a meaningful program for kids with autism because, mm-hmm. because of the full court press that's required, you know. So yeah, then the NGRF case finally came along, thank God. And a Supreme Court unanimously held that there was going to be a new standard. 
no longer was it going to be this barely more than de minimis standard. That was out the window. That was gone. So many cases, you know, dozens of cases had been decided at the federal level under that standard, and I think it held held the autism community back in a very big way. So NGRF comes along, and they say, you know what? The, the barely more than de minimis standard is out. The standard is markedly greater than that standard. The, the standard is now going to be one that requires a challenging IEP, an ambitious IEP, and one which is consistent with the child's potential. Mm-hmm. The first time the word potential ever came into the into the discussion in a, in a Supreme Court case ever. Wow. What year was this? Uh, 2017. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So look how long it took. And it, uh, very, very interesting because at the time of the Rowley case in 1982, you know, the, 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 the judge's clerk, John Roberts, was the, was the clerk for Justice Rehnquist. And um, 40 years later, John Roberts wrote the majority decision in Andrew F., which was a majority. It was a unanimous decision. I should, might have to correct myself. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I still don't think we're seeing the, the impact, the full impact of the Andrew F. case. So now everything has to be ambitious and challenging and has to be taking the child's potential and, and unique needs into account. Now we're talking. You know, now you can really, now you can use the Andrew F. case in a big way to establish effective ABA, you know, ABA or other programming for kids with autism. That's great. Yeah, amazing. And I, you know, I don't even think I realized that it was so recent. 2017, I just wrote this down just because I want to remember it. The first time the word potential was used related to somebody with autism in the Supreme Court. Is that what I heard you say? Well, let me correct that slightly. Sure. It was the first time that the word potential was used in a way that you have to take it into account. Okay. In, in, in other cases before that, it would say things like, you don't have to maximize the child's potential, or you don't have to optimize the child's potential. Mm-hmm. That, and, that's, and that much is still true today. Even today, that's, that's still the case. But you must take the child's potential into account. So let's say you have a child who's doing poorly on standardized testing because they have autism and because they, you know, they just, for whatever reason, you, they, 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 behaviorally, they're not able to comply with the test protocols. Mm-hmm. And then you have somebody who's able to, uh, you know, provide other testing to show that there's potential there. Well, then you can, you can say that, you know, the child should have a more ambitious program because of that potential. And, and, and on the other side, you can argue the flip that, if a child's potential is a little lower, but they can still learn, and it just requires more of, more, uh, of an effort to get them to learn, then, then you make the argument that because of their needs, they, they're entitled to the additional effort. So I think that it, it kind of works. It works for the autism community on both sides. Thank you for the explanation of that. And, and you know, all of the people listening, just keep in mind that this is on 2017. And so if you happen to be a person who is uh, thinking that um, you might end up needing some type of legal representation or you're struggling, you know, this this is stuff that you should be looking for opportunities to read about, to learn about, to understand. And um, Gary Mayerson, I know that your your practice has grown, although having been there, it still feels very comfortable and welcoming and and. Uh, um, you know, everybody seems to know each other. You know, you're, you're a great resource for so many families. And without being specific, I just I know that I've heard personally and in my profession at Anderson from families who have um, had the opportunity to work with you in, in various capacities and the impact that you and your colleagues and associates have made for them is something that they just they value at an incredible level. So um, I thank you for your work that you do in the field. And I and I um, 
I look forward to um, to seeing how this 2017 case uh, starts to make more of an impact over the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. It's really interesting. There's no question. I think that the legacy of this case will be resonating for years to come, for sure. Thank you. Gary Mayerson, um, I know that you've written at least one book, probably more, correct? Well, I have one book. It's um, called How to Compromise with Your School District Without Compromising Your Child. Okay. That was 2005. Um, and I have a new book coming out in a couple of months. It's called Autism's Declaration of Independence. It's a, it's a little different. It's a little different. It's really more about taking the long view and making sure that programs are, are calculated and engineered in, in a way that when a child graduates or, and, and leaves the educational system, that they leave and they entered the transition to adulthood with as much independence and self-sufficiency as possible. Well, excellent. So I recommend that, you know, anybody listening who wants to learn more about you and your perspective and and hear more from your voice um, and your experience to take a look at those books. And Gary Mayerson, thank you so, so much for being on the show today and for educating us about the history. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. This is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski. And remember, Anderson Cares. You've been listening to One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week. 